test. Yep.
I see most of the kids are already going, but if there are any kids still left in here, um, kindergarten through third grade, you can go on, head on to the back, going on downstairs. Good morning. <laughs> Our text today is Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, 6, and I'm going to start just by reading it. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Have you ever suffered an injustice against yourself? And that's a rhetorical question, because if you've been alive and around other people for any length of time, you certainly have. Perhaps you got a spanking for something that your sibling did, or perhaps you didn't get the job because the other guy's son plays ball with the boss's son. Or maybe your sibling's life is an absolute wreck and you are always the one called upon to uh, bail them out, but this keeps you from having your own life. Or maybe your identity was stolen and you've got all these debts that aren't your own. Or maybe someone broke into your house and now it doesn't feel safe anymore. Or perhaps you've eaten right and exercised and slept well and put on sunscreen and still had a debilitating heart attack at age 45. It's just not fair. There was a king in Israel named Ahab. He was the seventh king over Israel after the two nations had split following the death of Solomon. And he wasn't one of the good kings. He didn't follow after God like the king was required to. In fact, as the book of 1 Kings tells us in chapter 16, verses 30 and 34, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And if you look probably just a page ahead in the Bible to chapter 21, you will see one grand account of his wickedness, of his abuse of power. 
Ahab is the king. He's got a palace. He's got many servants. His nation is experiencing relative peace and economic prosperity. His father-in-law is the king of Tyre, an extremely wealthy shipping port to the north. His son-in-law is the king of Judah to the south. And it's a bit like saying, oh, yeah, my wife, yeah, her, her dad's company owns, owns half the, the oil wells in western North Dakota. Oh, and she's got a 40% stake in it. And also, yeah, yeah, Hawaii, yeah, that was, that was a great trip. Yeah, yeah, our daughter's wedding, yeah, that was great, yeah. Oh, no, we didn't, no, 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 they, they paid for us to go out. Well, he's, he's a VP at Microsoft, so they can afford it. And then about this point in the conversation, the butler comes in and says, now your bath is drawn, sir, and dinner will be ready when you want. He's got everything. So this man, Ahab, who has everything he could want and the money to buy anything else, looks across his front porch and sees a vineyard. It's beautiful, it's clean, it's perfect, it's not his. And he, so he goes to the owner, a man named Naboth, and says, your vineyard is right next to my house. Let me take it off your hands. How much do you want for it? Naboth says, my father worked this land before me, and his father kept it before him and his before him. I remember sitting on my grandpa's lap as a little boy just beneath that tree there. This land has been in my family, and it will stay in my family. It's not for sale. And Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite said to him. He lay down on his bed and turned his face away and would eat no food. Now his wife Jezebel is sick of Ahab's moping. So she says, aren't you the king? I'll get you your vineyard. So she sends official letters to the leaders of Naboth's city, saying, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men beside him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Now, what did the leaders of the city do? Did they do what was right and say, God forbid that we should kill an innocent man? No. They set it up. What did those two men do? Did they say, God forbid that we should accuse an innocent man so that he dies? No. They played right along. And so Naboth is dragged out of town and stoned to death. Because a man can be accused on the presence of two witnesses. So what does Ahab do when he finds out his wife has done this? Does he have those two worthless men and the leaders of the city and even his wife punished for the crime of murder? No. He goes right down. He cheers up. Takes the vineyard. It's his now. What does a bystander do with that? What does Naboth's wife do with that? What does Naboth's son do with that? He was a godly man. We can see that because he refuses to transfer his land. That is his birthright, even for better land or money, even to the king. When Israel took the land, God gave it to them as a possession for all their generations. It wasn't theirs to buy and sell. It was God's land. They were just the caretakers. Naboth knew that and obeyed it. So you have this godly man who has been seized by the king, accused of this most godless crime, and he's executed for it. His family now lives under the shame of their father's supposed sin. Their property has been taken, and no one wants to help them. 
They're going to grow up in shame, derision, poverty, and confusion. They'll never be able to trust anyone in authority again. And believe any and any belief that someone will help them has been completely shattered. There will not be a day that goes by when they're not out there begging for food and somebody looks at them and sneers and says, you're Naboth's kids. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. The king was God's personal representative on earth. He led the people for God. He was called a shepherd, just as the Lord was the great shepherd of Israel. And it was from God's personal representative that this great wickedness came. This even casts doubt on God's justice. If you can't find justice on earth, who's to say you will find it in heaven? So if you can grasp something of the desperation that they must have felt, if you can wrap your head around the idea of having everyone be against you, if you can imagine being so hopeless that nothing could help, then you know what Solomon is talking about. There are three consolations in this text that Solomon gives us to help us understand and live with the existence of such horrible injustice and oppression. The final judgment of God, God's purpose behind the vanity, and work. These are the best consolations Solomon has for his readers to live in the face of this vanity under the sun. First, we're going to look at each of these three and see where the consolation comes from and how it helps. And then we're going to look beyond Solomon. We will look with the eyes of faith at a reality that Solomon did not have the opportunity to see. The final judgment of God. When reading the Sermon of Ecclesiastes, we need to remember that Solomon doesn't have all the information that we do. He certainly didn't have a New Testament, but he didn't really have an Old Testament either. Most of what was written of in the Old Testament hadn't happened yet. And even if everything that had happened prior to Solomon had moved immediately from just word of mouth to being written down, he would have only had the five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and maybe Job. So when he thinks about God's judgment, he doesn't have all the literature of the prophets to draw on, these, to draw on those conclusions from. This may very well be one of the first times the concept of judgment after death is found in the Bible. And he doesn't even receive it as prophecy from God. He draws the conclusion from what we saw in last week's text. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. There must be a season for judgment because there is a season for everything. That's Solomon's, Solomon's idea. He didn't know prophetically that judgment day was coming. He inferred it. He said in his heart, God will judge everyone. We don't see it happening before death. Therefore, there must be another time set when God will judge everyone after death. So Solomon offers this comfort to us. Injustice and oppression will not last forever because God will end them when he judges the earth in righteousness. 
The world, this world after the fall is disordered, but God will restore order. But this idea of judgment day is very far off to Solomon. It doesn't actually help him much. It's not a great consolation to him. And you can tell that because he adds one thought right on top of another thought. He says, first, I said in my heart, God will judge. And immediately after, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon sees that God is actively doing something by allowing injustice to have its time and season under the sun. There's a purpose behind this vanity. And the purpose that Solomon perceives to be a reason, maybe not the only reason, but a reason, is to humble us. We should be humbled by the fact that we will die just like the animals. All our intelligence and ingenuity cannot undo the judgment curse of death. God warned our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And after they do eat of it, he passes this judgment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God made the beasts of the field and humankind both on the day on day six of creation, but humans were supposed to be different. We were made in God's image. We were made to rule over the beasts of the earth and all the earth as God's stewards. But because of our rebellion, we end up as dust under hoof and underfoot. And we try to deny it by looking for our hope and pleasures and wisdom and sensibility, thinking too highly of ourselves, then everything, thinking that everything will work out. But we should be humbled, because when we are humbled, everything is in his proper place. We find comfort if we trust that God is God and we are not. We will find peace under the sun if we accept that God sets the seasons and we don't. God has wisely given you the season you are in right now. And when it is right, he will wisely give you the next season. But trust God now and live in the season you are in. And while we live in these seasons, God has given us work to do in them. Now, I want to clarify something before going on. When I say work, I don't just mean your nine-to-five job. I mean all the effort you put forth to continue living in this world. That includes your career, because that's how you eat, but it also includes cleaning your house, doing the laundry, fixing the snowblower, mowing, cooking, dishes, and much more. That's your work. And we've seen Solomon go back and forth with the idea of work. Because he knows that we are prone to treat the gift of work as either part of the curse or a cure-all for it. We treat it as part of the curse when we act like the fool in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The fool looks around and sees that everything is vanity. He reasons that it doesn't matter if he works or not, because work won't keep him from dying, 
work won't prevent suffering, work won't make him secure, and then he ends up wasting away. If you see work as a necessary evil, wishing to be done with it as soon as you can, whether by clever plans or winning the lottery, then you rob yourself of God's gift in it. But in verse 6, he addresses the opposite problem of treating work as the cure-all. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Don't work too hard for what you don't need. Do your job with quietness and rejoice in your one handful as a gift from God. Don't toil and strive after wind. Solomon is warning, especially we who are prone to find our value in our work. Because the reward you get for all your toil is one extra handful. That's it. And striving after wind. You work too hard and lose out on the benefits God has given you in your work. You work and begin to hate your job because it's become an idol that doesn't give you any benefit. Rather than taking joy in your work, you turn it into a harsher taskmaster than any of the Israelites suffered in Egypt. We have to avoid both errors. We can see work as a necessary evil or the meaning of life. But instead, we have to accept that God has given us work to do for our own good. Your work won't save you, but don't worry, it's not meant to. So Solomon, when faced with the reality of injustice and vanity, strengthens his heart by reflecting on the truth of God's judgment, God's purposes, and God's gift. Injustice will not reign forever because one day God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Yet for now, we should learn to be humble because suffering and death happen to everyone. And as we humbly live in this world under the curse of sin, we must work rightly and take joy in our work, for that is God's gift. That's the conclusion Solomon has drawn. But remember what I said earlier, that Solomon is making all of his assumptions based on only the information that he had at the time. He was the wisest man to ever live, but someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon had no idea how God would make everything right, and so it looks pretty dreary. It looks pretty disappointing. He had no concept of the resurrection, of the new heavens and the new earth. He even asks, who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down. Who knows? Who knows what happens? He doesn't, he doesn't know. He knew death was the judgment of God, and so only God could solve it, but he could not have imagined how. But God has revealed it to us. Coming years after Solomon's death, God spoke through his prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, 14 through 20. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This is the same problem of injustice Solomon is talking about. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. 
He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. What Solomon could not see is that God himself would come down under the sun. He would walk in a garden again like Eden, but this garden would be Gethsemane. God himself would take care of injustice in a way Solomon could not imagine. In a way that really we wouldn't even imagine. We would probably just have God rid the world of injustice with a wave of his hand. Say, no, everything's right, everything's good. But that's not God's way. Because the brutal truth about injustice is that it's not just something we suffer. It is something we cause. We cause injustice in the world. We cause other people to suffer when we lie, cheat, and gossip when we slander and envy others, when we sin, when we look at somebody else's vineyard and say, I wish that was mine, maybe I'll pay him for it. Oh, he doesn't want that? Well, I'll just mope. Or when we say, well, I have power, I, I, can, I can make this happen. By our sin, we are responsible for injustice. So if God's going to take care of it and not get rid of us, he's going to have to do something about it. Because if he were just going to remove injustice, it would be just like Noah's day. A flood to wipe out the earth. Instead, he chose to put an end to injustice by suffering it himself for our sake. The thorns that now come out of the ground because of the curse of sin were on Jesus' brow. Paul tells us in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Through faith in Jesus, the belief that he, being God, is able to suffer and did suffer the judgment of God that condemned us, we receive the promised Holy Spirit. The same spirit that dwelt in Jesus. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit who dwells in you.
So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And we give thanks to God. For he has done it. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Emmanuel. You are the God who is with us. You are the God who came down by your great might and power. You came down, and in strength you took on weakness. In power you took on emptiness. In righteousness you took on sin for our sake. When we look at the evil of the world, we see that we are responsible. When we look at suffering and death, we see that it is the curse that is upon us for our sin, and we can't take care of it. We can't do away with it ourselves. But God, you being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.